Welcome back to the Sports Lawyers Association podcast. Whether you work for a team on the field, the ice, a court, track, or a diamond, our association gives you an opportunity to grow. You're listening to episode number six, Deep Inside Baseball, with your host, Lester Munson, a member of the Sports Lawyers Association. Alongside Lester is Scott Boris, another member of the Sports Lawyers Association. Sit back and enjoy this episode of the Sports Lawyers Association podcast. Greetings and welcome to the Sports Lawyers Association podcast. It is our first podcast of the year 2020, and we have a blockbuster of an interview for you today. I'm Lester Munson. I am a journalist and a lawyer. For the past 30 years, I have written about legal issues in the sports industry for Sports Illustrated and for ESPN. And our guest today is one of the most powerful and the most important individuals in the entire sports industry, Scott Boris. He is a lawyer and an agent. He represents 80 Major League Baseball players during the current free agency season. He has put together contracts worth more than $1 billion. That's billion with a B, as in banana. Steven Strasburg, Anthony Rendon, Garrett Cole, Mike Moustakas, Dallas Kuechel, and others are in this group. Uh, Just now, in the hours and the days before this podcast, he has settled 17 cases for arbitration-eligible players. In each case, the team decided to settle with Scott rather than go into arbitration. There's only one inference you can draw from that, and that is that the teams did not want to go into arbitration with Scott Boris on the other side. Included in that group, Cody Bellinger, $11.5 million, the most ever for a first-year arbitration-eligible player. Also, Chris Bryant of the Chicago Cubs, an agreement of $18.6 million. Uh, All of these have come along this year. Last year at this time, there was allegation of collusion and conspiracy, and now we have what appears to be a robust market for players. How did all of this develop, Scott? Is it, in fact, a robust market? Is there some more balance between the owners and the players? What is going on here? Thank you, Lester. It's a pleasure to be with you. In the baseball industry, I think there was an analytic revolution where clubs over the last three or four years felt that it was best for their organizations to defer from free agency as a solution of last resort. In doing so, they would put together analytic teams, they would evaluate them on a perspective evaluation of uh, a methodology that was common to most teams, and therefore trades and trade analysis were at the forefront. And it was thought that we don't want to use free agency unless we've used our our own provincial intellect of each franchise, where I think each franchise thought that their dynamic of analysis was proprietary and ahead of or in advance of other clubs. And therefore, they could use the trade market and get advantages on trade that they would not be able to obtain in free agency. Clubs proceeded to 
not win. Clubs proceeded to lose attendance. Fans clearly wanted players that they identified with and knew the names of. Uh, their analytic prognostications proved to be very incorrect in a number of cases. The success rate and probability of, of analyzing what talent would do with the gradients uh, provided by those clubs did not work out. And so we had a loss of revenue, a loss of attendance four years in a row. The attendance in major leagues has gone down. We had non-competitive teams that rose from three or four, which is customary in a, in a league prior to the season, to being 12 to 14. And I think uh, with the revenues in the game advancing, spiraling to to uh, levels that uh, had never been seen before in the 12 billion range, and yet the performance and commitment to players' salaries not moving from what they were over a decade ago. All of that brought out to a bad product and brought out to fans rejecting the notion that the analytical process, while being a tool, was not to be a weight that was would overcome signing veteran quality known players to the fans. And I think the clubs that started winning, the Washington, Boston club, signed free agents, major free agents, you know, Scherzer, Strasburg, you know, built their teams around that with veterans, signed Corbin, uh, Boston signed J.D. Martinez. They signed Price. You know, they made a trade and then later re-signed Sale. These clubs were winning at the expense of clubs who were not involving themselves in the free agent market. So I think it's proven true that since that model was working, clubs have decided to retain their fan bases, move more into that area, take a more traditional approach. Certainly use analytics as a tool, but understand that there's also a scouting and an evaluative measure of known players that allow teams to succeed and allow and things that allow their fan base to purchase tickets, their TV ratings to rise and go forward. And and with these contracts that you have put together lately, we can even go back to Bryce Harper and to Scherzer, the pitcher you mentioned. Do these big contracts have a connection to attendance for the teams that are signing guys like Strasburg, Rendon, Cole, and Harper? Well, I think one of the things that we can say is I had uh, Mike Illich way back in 2002. I think his club lost 119 games. He called me and said, look, what, what we've tried methods here. What should we do to win? And I said, let me look at this, but you're having trouble bringing players to Detroit. You've got a brand new ballpark. It's not a popular city among the players. Let me, I need to, first of all, make sure players can perform well there. I'm going to look at the division and see how we can make your team successful. And, and over the years, we added my clients, you know, Pudge Rodriguez, Magli Ordonez, Kenny Rogers, uh, all those players, you know, they drafted Rick Purcello. They did a lot of things from our client base that allowed them to grow. And in three years' time, they were in a World Series. And we certainly, with Washington, we we added Strasburg, Harper, Rendon, all through the draft. And I told ownership that if you, whoever doesn't sign Max Scherzer most likely will not win the World Series. But whoever does sign him, I believe that team in the next four or five years will win a World Series because he's that meaningful in the playoffs. He's that extraordinarily and 
also a team that signed Strasburg, I believe, would win a World Series. And I said, our, our algorithms that we keep in our offices tell us that if you make these percentages, and I went to the owners of the Red Sox, and I said, if you sign J.D. Martinez, I think it dramatically increases your probability of winning a World Series because not only his performance, but the impact he'll have on his lineup and his instincts, coachability. is almost like having an extra hitting coach. It'll impact other players that I have on the team. And Mookie Betts' batting average went from 264 to 300, and J- Jackie Bradley's improved, Xander Bogart's improved. All these players took advantage of his presence, and sure enough, you know, the, the probabilities, you can never say it's a surety, but it certainly allowed that club to have one of the top OPSs in the game, and, and, and they won a World Series. So I think the signing of Scherzer, I told three other teams that if you didn't sign him, our information and data algorithms tell us you will not win. You'll be in the playoffs, you'll win during the season, but you're not going to win a World Series. And none of those teams have won, and Washington won with Frostburg and Scherzer being on the team. You mentioned uh, your own research and the algorithms that you use. What is your strength, your, your strongest leverage as you talk with these teams? Is it your research? Is it the staff that you've put together? What, what is it that you're able to take to the Nationals and say, here is why you've got to sign Scherzer. What, what evidence do you use when you're making that argument? A lot of it is historical, where you go back and you talk about putting Barry Zito on the giant. Why is that going to have an impact on them? And my answer to them was that he's not a number one pitcher, he's a number two, but he is going to provide the space that allows Kane, Lincecum, later Bumgarner. He's going to allow the innings and the space for those pitchers to develop in a time frame that's not rushed. It's going to provide the depth where you can compete. And sure enough, during the course of that seven-year contract, the Giants won two world championships. And any time you can sign a player and come away with a world championship, um, it is a rare event. There's only been nine owners in baseball, nine, who've ever won a world championship. Boston's won four. The Giants have won three, and the Cardinals have won two. And so when you look at over the past, you know, of the current ownership, where it's exchanged that much, that you have almost 70% of the league that's never won a world championship, and that ownership has. So these things are hard to win. You bring these things forward, and you'll let teams know that if you want to win, you're going to have to have star players to do it with. And there are other avenues, like Dayton Moore with Kansas City. When he became the general manager, he said, we had never drafted your draft picks. And then they drafted, I think, six out of seven or five out of six number one picks. Kansas City took Hosmer Mustakas to lead and, and Hochever, and they put together a bullpen with Holland and Hochever and uh, Davis. They put those great position players, they got them experience. And it took them a number of years, five or six years, but they won. Kansas City was in the World Series, utilizing our draft picks to get as a core and getting being in the World Series not once but twice and winning a world championship once, which is phenomenal considering the economic disparity of Kansas City versus the, you know, the major market clubs. 
And, um, you know, we talked a great deal about Matt Holliday's influence in St. Louis and what that would have on that team. And, and they won a world championship. So we can connect almost any franchise with one of our star free agent signings as you go back and, and look at what they've done to uh, that there's some participatory process with a major free agent and, and the ultimate world champion. I am a lifelong Chicagoan and a Cub fan. Uh, do you think you could call Tom Ricketts tomorrow and offer him some of this wisdom? Well, remember way back when that drafting Chris Bryant, you know, for Theo is that, you know, we also got on the phone and, and, and certainly talked to him a lot about getting Jake Arietta and to Theo's credit, he took both those players. So they're talking to us about talent way back when. Uh, Addison Russell was our client that they got from Oakland and had a lot of conversations about him and who he was. And, and so they, they uh, went through the process. And, and again, they signed Lester, a great free agent. They signed Lackey, a great free agent. They signed Hayward. Uh, they signed Zobris. They used free. They spent five hundred million dollars in free agency. The other teams were using analytics at the time. They said, "I'm going to sign the free agents," and they used that with their draft picks of Baez and with you know certainly Bryant and and Almora and all of those top picks culminated with the trades they made as well for Russell and for for Rizzo. That team was put together using the three prongs of free agency trade and draft. And when you look at that success, you can't shut off the, you know, and the problem is when teams payrolls get to these artificial levels, everybody says, I'm spending $200 million. Well, spending $200 million when most clubs are making 300 to 400 million is one thing, but now the clubs are making 500 to 700 million and they're still spending $200 million. So when your revenues jump and you stop spending the money on the payroll, stop signing the free agents, and you want to use these artificial barriers of saying, the luxury tax doesn't allow me to do this, winning is not about the luxury tax because there's now eight teams that are spending, 10 teams that are spending $200 million, and seven or eight years ago, there were only two teams spending that. So everybody catches up, and you have to continue to reinvest your profits and your increased revenues to keep the advantages that you enjoyed back in 16, you have to keep investing more money into the players so that you are that much better than the opponents who are who don't share in a major market like the Cubs do. When you mention the luxury tax and the 200 million payroll, uh, we're going to have one more season of free agency, two more seasons of baseball, and then the collective bargaining agreement comes to an end. What must the players do to improve the current structure? Obviously, they're doing well under this structure, but from what you're saying, they can do better. And what, what would they be looking for as they bargain a new deal? Well, when you go back to 96, when the reserve system was said, we will give you six years of reserve, and we'll also, in this CBA, give you the right of free agency and the right of arbitration. Two things have happened to the right of free agency since then. They have evolved a luxury tax, which did not exist. That steps on the right of free agency because now clubs are penalized for having higher payrolls if they're signing free agents. And they use it as an excuse to not sign free agents 
because they say they, quote, don't want to pay a tax, albeit de minimis. But the revenues continue to increase. But so they put these luxury tax. They also put a rule in that you have to, when you sign a free agent, now you have to give up draft picks. And you have qualifying offers where a club can give a player a qualifying offer of a salary for one year. That does is it allows the club to, again, if you're a free agent, now the clubs don't want to sign you because they have to give away a high draft pick. None of those things existed in 96. And so the still, the reserve is the same. And in arbitration, we now have where it was six years for arbitration. We know in the Chris Bryant case, when they manipulate it and they argue that it's appropriate under the rules, that here's a guy that would have been a free agent if he had one more day of service. And they just sent him down for a pyrrhic few days, even though he was the rookie of the year, an MVP, and he's talented. It wasn't about his skill. It was about they wanted to manipulate the system so that the right negotiated in 96 of six years actually turns into seven years because they get control of the player for another year. So in this process, if we return to the basic reason for giving a six-year reserve, which is the right of free agency and a right of arbitration, we have to make sure that 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 system that was in place then, that free agency has the same value and the arbitration rights have the same value to the player to give that reserve you know, to the ownership, which is very valuable to them. So it is really in many ways how you find and define a path, which I think is up to the union and the owners, to quote the quid pro quo that used to exist when we created the, the agreement and the reserve system that is now in place today. A couple of uh, final questions, Scott. How important is it in your work that you are a lawyer, that you have the education, the training, the ethical standards, the continuing professional education, uh, and the license. How does that make you different from and more effective than agents who are, who do not have that background? It's a dramatic difference. For example, I don't represent managers and coaches. And the reason is, as a lawyer, I wasn't going to be, even though I have many clients who are now managers or coaches, I don't represent them and let them know I can't because I represent players. And what's going on currently and today, for example, we have managers getting suspended, managers being evaluated. And if you represented the managers and the players, you would not know how to advise the players you represent because basically the information they're giving to the commissioner's office about the conduct that goes on in the locker room may be in conflict with with the protection that the manager needs. And so for those reasons, most agencies that are not legally educated, they just want the revenue stream and and they openly say, I represent managers, coaches, players, you know, I represent teams in marketing. I do all these things that are in conflict with the client. And that ethic is something that is not considered or evaluated. I don't even represent other sports because I want to make sure that the ethical setting with which I work for the baseball players I represent is not in any way infringed upon. And I'm not suggesting it is if you do represent other sports, but we're very cautious. The thing that's most helpful to me, frankly, is the combination of being a former professional player. You know, I played in the minor leagues for the Cardinals, the Cubs. That background of the systems, being a player, understanding players, because 70% of my job is not negotiating contracts. It is not interpreting the collective bargaining agreement. 
is it understanding the game, the psychology, how to aid a player and grow a player through a major league season, through a minor league career, through a college season before the draft or a high school year, to be able to counsel them, advise them, sometimes discipline them so that you can create an environment that is about what the player's needs are so it's fitting to his personality and create a path for him, his own individual path, to succeed and withstand and persevere uh, a successful major league career. And without having the playing background um, and the legal background, I do not in any way believe that the foundation at the stage from which you speak, I don't think it would be listened would have been listened to with the clarity and the trust of the owners or the players I represent because you have to speak owners language who are often lawyers. You have to speak the players language. You have to understand the, the need. I have 135 people. I have five lawyers on our staff. We have a legal team. Uh, we have a, a specialized arbitration litigation staff. Uh, we have a $10 million database. We have specialized software. We have our own Sport Fitness Institute, which has trainers, and we have psychologists, all designed to help the player physically and mentally grow nutritionists. Uh, we have a communication staff. We go to the ballparks every night to watch the league because watching it live tells you truths that you can't see on paper about players and what they're doing and who's advancing, who's declining in performance. So the commitment is great. It is a, a life uh, it is where your phone never stops ringing and you're, you're always on call. It's a, it's a passionate pursuit of what you do. But without the formal legal education and knowing how to strategically align circumstances, both legally and from a performance standpoint, contract language. I know that one of our players was hurt you know, when he was playing basketball. And we had a clause in his contract that talked about where he was, that the contract would exclude only if he played competitive basketball rather than non-competitive or training. And I saw a player like Aaron Boone, which had the full clause, just basketball versus non-competitive basketball. All of a sudden, one was released and the other one kept the contract for millions of dollars. I'll give you an example. So we're constantly... At a, we have a problem where agents do not pay attention to contract language, to the addendums of the contract, to the language that goes in. And we, as lawyers, obviously, in insurance contracts, we have had bouts and litigation against Lloyds of London, where we've had bad faith actions against them, and not any specific company, but insurance carriers. And, and these are things that have made our clients' careers completely different because they were injured. The Insurance companies did not protect or tried to find an exclusion and were able to litigate and go through and get a return and even a bad faith punitive damage so that players get their lives are completely changed by having the legal protection that a lawyer gives a client throughout. And the communication methods, the ethical operation of the office is as though we run a law firm and we conduct ourselves as such. Uh, we have all the provisions of notice, chronicling of information, recordation of transactional behavior, all those things that are taught to you in the legal process. And uh, so I think there's a big disparity between being represented by an agent and 
an attorney. And unfortunately, in our world, that distinction by players is one that is often overlooked. The uh, one final question, Scott. The uh, you have done amazing things as an agent. You have set up an organization that is setting new standards. You have both substantive and anecdotal stories, unlike anybody else. You're a man of a certain age. When are you going to write your definitive uh, memoir book? Well, I I kind of believe that I went to law school at McGeorge where. Anthony Kennedy was a constitutional law professor. And I've always paid close attention to his career. And I believe he became a, a Supreme Court justice around in the 60s. And, and I kind of believe that ballplayers are really at their best from 20 to 40. Surgeons are about their best from maybe 35 to 60. But lawyers, I think we're just kind of beginning our careers. And if you kind of go from 60 to 95, I think you're just starting to be a, a well-seasoned and oiled machine. And much like the admiration I have for Justice Kennedy, I fully intend to uh, sit in this chair for a long, long time and enjoy all the work and efforts of myself and the staff that we are able to get to this point. So I'm, I'm looking for the next 35 years to really enjoy this. That is an amazing, uh, I think you have a fantastic plan. Uh, thank you, Scott Boris. This has been a terrific interview. I am Lester Munson for the Sports Lawyers Association. Thank you all for listening. Thanks for tuning in today. Feel free to share your thoughts with us on Twitter at Sports Lawyers or find us on Facebook and LinkedIn and be sure to be on the lookout for more podcasts.